Hi everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy who's worked for a number of liberal political organizations and campaigns. I've also lived abroad for a couple of years, which puts me in a good position to reflect for my American audience on some events of note going on outside the country. Speaking of things outside the U.S., Russia. The New York Times reported about a month ago that the Russians have been paying the Taliban bounties for American and British soldiers that they kill. The intelligence community has known about this for over a year, which means the president almost certainly has too. Although he denies having known before the report appeared in the <clears throat> failing New York Times, we know he's been aware of it for at least as long as we have, which means that for a period of more than a month, He's had no reaction to the fact that a country whose president he's talked to repeatedly on the phone has been paying terrorists to kill American men and women in uniform. I guess those service members should have just been smart like him and paid a doctor to diagnose them with bone spurs to get out of going. Trump's non-reaction to this frankly outrageous news is a combination of disgusting and straight-up pathetic, a description that I think applies pretty fairly to his entire adult life. But the fact that the president acts like a fully compromised Russian asset is old news at this point, and though I'm sure it'll come up, it's not the main topic of today's episode. Many of my fellow liberals became acutely aware that Putin's Russia is, you know, an immediate problem for those of us who support freedom, liberalism, and democracy after their attacks on the 2016 election, which at the very least helped Trump waddle into the Oval Office. But modern Russia's bad behavior didn't start in 2016, and it's actually been escalating pretty steadily for a while. In today's episode, we're going to take a deeper dive into what that's looked like, why it's been happening, and what can be done about it. But I'm not going to be doing so alone. Professor Andrew Latham served in the Canadian military before working on arms control and non-proliferation for the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. More recently, he's been chair of the political science department at my alma mater, McAllister College, where I took, I think, more classes with him than any other professor. Without a doubt, the single best thing about my time there was getting to serve as a teaching assistant in one of Professor Latham's classes for my final two years at Mac, during which he became my friend and, I think it's more than fair to say, a real mentor to me. In planning this episode, there was no one I'd rather have gotten to talk to about this. As you'll hear... Professor Latham and I have a fairly open and broad conversation, touching on Russia's recent history, strategic culture, and self-image, how those things bring it into conflict with the West, where that might lead, and what the West can do about it. I really enjoyed this longer discussion with my old friend. I hope you do too. So without further ado, here's Professor Latham. So, Professor, I remember back in 2012, you, I, and a group of other students watching the third presidential debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, and poor Mitt got laughed straight off the stage for saying that Russia was our number one geostrategic adversary. Turns out maybe he had a point. Maybe, maybe. Uh, certainly a geopolitical adversary, um, as opposed to a friend or strategic partner. Uh, not the, I would argue, uh, certainly not the only or most important. Um, but I do want to underscore that. Uh, Mitt was onto something, which is that uh, the United States and Russia do have different interests and they are pursuing those interests in a way that bring them into conflict. And that conflict takes forms that are in some ways very old um, and some ways very new and particular to this historical moment. So speaking of the new ones, I think um, 
the tension between Russia and the United States that most people in the United States are currently aware of, certainly people on the left or people on the left who suddenly started paying attention to Russia, um, have it more in the context of the attack on the 2016 election. Um, but I think it might be worth our discussing a little bit um, the ways in which Russia has been going after the West and NATO and stuff for quite a bit longer than just prior to 2016, no? Yes. Well, we'd have to take it back to, um, let's just assume, which I think is, is factually correct, that uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, Russia, it's not just Putin, it's Russia post-counter-revolution um, uh, post uh, in, in 1991, is pursuing interests that are at odds with American interests and the, and the interests of America's friends and allies uh, in the region and around the world. That's a given. Um, if you look at the situation um, with the United States and Russia post-1991, it's shaped to a large degree by A, hopefulness that Russia would become just like us, and B, um, uh, a sense that the Russian military was no match for the United States. Think Desert Storm, Desert Shield. Uh, think the way in which these, this new kind of warfare that America introduced, precision-guided munitions, lots of uh, intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance that's electronic, uh, you know, revolution in military affairs as it was called at the time. The Russians couldn't hope to keep up with that. Um, and so that's, that's, those two factors are shaping American interests against or American policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Russian policy vis-a-vis -vis America right through till about 2003. And there were some hopeful signs and some, some starts in terms of uh, taking the rough edges off the relationship, but it was an adversarial relationship. Certainly things, uh, at least under Boris Yeltsin, seemed to be a lot easier. Maybe this was just because Clinton and Yeltsin liked to hang out drunk and, you know, that resulted in, in funny videos on YouTube that I encourage everyone to go look up. But isn't it... Isn't it true that during the Yeltsin years and the first several Putin years, things seemed to be a little bit more stable? I, as I recall, Putin was the first world leader to call Bush with condolences after 9-11, and, and uh, things seemed to be between at least those two leaders beyond whether or not you think it was reasonable that Bush saw Putin's soul. Um, things for at least the first couple of years of Putin's tenure seemed to be not so bad, and then Medvedev it was not horrible as well, and then Putin seemed to kind of come back worse in 2012. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things going on, one of which is remember that uh, the unipolar moment and uh, the end of history and all of these tropes that were circulating back in the 1990s that, you know, the Cold War was over um, and, and, and that was that, and that we could now have a more normal relationship with our one-time adversaries, that Russia could become like Canada, Iceland, France, Australia, just another you know, power in the world but it was a liberal, it was going to evolve into a liberal democratic power. And Yeltsin certainly made the right noises and seemed to be a very avuncular and unthreatening person, yeah. uh, threatening face. But that did not change the underlying reality, which as I'll say in a moment gets exacerbated when Putin comes to power. But the underlying reality is that um, a Russia which is true to its own sense of self as a player in global politics, is always going to have differences with a player like the United States, which sees itself as the unipolar power, what the, what the French used to call the hyperpower, yeah. the sole remaining superpower. Those two things are at odds. You layer on top of that Russian history, and I'm not talking just about the Cold War here now, I'm talking about the Second World War, and I'm talking about Tsarist history, going back at least to Napoleon and his invasion and, 
and what that means in terms of Russia's policy towards Central and Eastern Europe, which are again at odds with American interests and America's vision in the 1990s for what Europe, Central, Eastern and Western ought to look like. So there's some underlying, think of them as clashing tectonic plates. Now the players matter, right? So when Putin comes to power, there's a change in tone, but there are some other deeper changes as well. Among those deeper forces you refer to Russia's historical role as being sort of locally imperialistic in Eastern and Central, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Do you think those are still driving a lot of their, uh, those, those historical forces are still driving a lot of the activity that they are, that they're doing now? Yes, I do. I think Russia learned lessons in 1812 and it learned lessons in 1917 and it learned the same lesson again in 1941, 40. Um, that absent what they are sometimes referred to as a defensive glasses, a kind of mm -hmm. uh, fortress wall uh, running down the middle of Europe, that they were always susceptible to invasion, that the big wars of Europe were going to be fought on Russian soil, not on somebody else's soil. Mm -hmm. That explains the Russian uh, acts at the end of the Second World War when they um, built that defensive wall in East Germany and the che Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Poland. So then that might seem to explain some of their actions to try to insinuate themselves on a number of former Soviet republics uh, that, like we saw what happened in Belarus over the weekend with that, the leader of that country, who I think is pretty tight with the current yes. Russian state for, you know, sort of solidifying his control. Well, there are, there are a couple of things going on there. One of which is that, that historical insecurity, which by the way, is not unjustified given Russian history. But then there's also the history of Russian imperialism and almost colonial settlerism, right? So yeah. there's, there's all kinds of Russian minorities in many of those post-Soviet nominally mm -hmm. and factually independent states. And I think it's what, like 20, 20, 10 or 20% in most of the Baltic states. That's right, and some yeah. much higher than that, that see themselves, think of themselves as Russian, but trapped on the wrong side of the post-Cold War border. And it, when, when you've built the legitimacy of the regime on, on the basis of Russian nationalism, that has consequences because nationalism says that all of the people who belong to a certain nation should be contained within that one national state. And that is not the case. So you have irredentist pressures. You also have geopolitical concerns and insecurities. Um, and you also have the dynamics of a, of a declining power um, struggling to maintain some kind of presence on the global stage. Look at me, look at me, I'm still here, even though I'm in decline. And by me, I mean uh, Putin speaking on behalf of Russia. Yeah. So there's a lot of things going on there that are drawing Russia into uh, Western and Central and Eastern European affairs, but also Syria, right? Um, that the relationship with, with China is colored by this to some extent as well. Uh, Russia does not aspire, Putin's Russia does not aspire to global domination, does not aspire to be the, the head of a global empire in the same way that uh, Stalin did, for example. Mm -hmm. um, this is, as you put it, kind of local imperialism, which has been the Russian modus vivendi for a long, long time. Let's build a wall far away from Mother Russia. Let's make sure the wars that need to be fought are fought on somebody else's soil. Um, and let's make sure that we remain a player because we are a great civilization, uh, great civilization state, to use the term of art these days. Mm. Turkey is a civilization state. China is a civilization state. Russia is a civilization state. Mm. And you can see that manifesting itself in terms of Putin's embrace of the Orthodox Church, for example. Right. 
Um, I doubt very much in my heart of hearts that Putin is a very religious man. Yeah, it doesn't um, strike me that way. No, KGB and all that. Yeah. Um, but he certainly has embraced the institution and he's embraced an ideology which says Russia equals the Orthodox Church in some way, mm -hmm. that the fates of these two institutions uh, are, are linked and that... Um, is it possible that some of that is almost a, a balancing act? Putin's embrace of the Orthodox Church and of, let's say, a, a particular strain of homophobia that has mostly been marginalized in Western liberal countries. Uh, and, and the fact that Russia is not, I mean, besides its own pre-existing ethnic diversity in that Russia is geographically massive and there are a number of sub-ethnic groups uh, sort of mixed together in that country, there's not a lot of immigration from, let's say, non you know, white European parts of the world to Russia. Is it possible that some of the, some of the sort of social conservatism in the form of the embrace of the Orthodox Church and that kind of thing is almost uh, just a sort of a, 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 de a defining of itself in opposite to the sort of cosmopolitan Western moment that we're in on the other side of the border? Yeah, exactly. I mean, every state needs a, a myth, um, a legitimating myth, a myth that provides the basic um, orientation on the foreign policy stage. You know, our myth, uh, I think it's largely true, but it certainly has mythical qualities as we are the global good guys. We've got it figured out in terms of liberal democracy and a humane kind of capitalism, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody just was like us, the world would be a very peaceful place, right? And be a very good place. Um, and we have done our best to export that uh, really since yeah. the Second World War, but especially since the Cold War. Uh, pushing some fairly liberal uh, policy prescriptions in Africa, for example, where they're not always welcome. Mm -hmm. Now, Ch Russia has defined itself historically as a kind of hybrid. It is both in Europe and sort of of Europe, but not really. It's interesting. And it's almost like a, like a turkey in that regard. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so there are Asianists in, in Russia who see Russia as an Asian power, mm -hmm. and it should be looking east. And there are, and this is a, and there are Europeanists. This is a cleavage that goes back a couple of centuries mm -hmm. um, in Russia. And then you overlay on top of that um, the 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 othering dynamic, right? Uh, one defines oneself partly in terms of one's own internal qualities, but those are also defined in terms of how we're different from our nemesis, um, our opposite, our other. And so, to some extent, if the United States says black, uh, the Russians are going to say white. Yeah. And Secular humanism being our civil religion in the West these days, the opposite of that is a kind of um, a particular take on the Russian Orthodox history uh, of Russia. We are, to be Russian is to be Russian Orthodox, right? Even though the reality is not that. Or under Katerov, a sort of increased um, tolerance of more conservative Islam in the Chechen uh, parts of Russia. Yes, exactly. And, and so um, it's, it's as long as there's no direct challenge to the, the main uh, underlying mythos of, of the Russian nation. And so that's a kind of subordinate way of in, incorporating the uh, Muslim minorities. Uh, see, they're just like us, but it's a different flavor. Right. So then for whatever reason, whether it be, I mean, a combination of sort of newfound conservative national identity combined with centuries, it sounds like, of a strategy of basically trying to push the border away from the motherland, as it were. Um, the reality is that at least since, I would say at least since 10 or 12 years ago, I think it got, to me, to my mind, to my observation, 
It got a lot worse when Putin came back in 2012 after his brief stint as prime minister, uh, that, that the Russia's level of aggressiveness with the West seems to have gone up pretty drastically. Um, but, I mean, this, I, mean I, I know this in the form of uh, pretty aggressive harassment of Western diplomats in Western Europe by the Russian security forces. Um, yeah. Yep. And, and, and buzzing um, the UK with bombers and even uh, Sarah Palin's Alaska. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, being more assertive on the global stage. And partly that's a function of, um, remember, well, the Soviet, the transition from the Soviet Union to Russia really laid low uh, Russia, the post-Soviet state. Um, its military was weak. It was still organized to fight the Second World War, which it did very well but not post-1991 uh, Desert Storm. It could not go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States there. It, that's that's, also, that's true of the military, but it, I think it's less true of the intelligence services now. I mean, like Russia, well, to me, seems like this country that was a, a formerly large military power, but that has just a, a giant spy infrastructure left over that they've since deployed. Yes, yeah, well, so weak militarily, weak economically. Uh, the, the Russian, the post-Soviet Russian state finds its footing ultimately economically when there was still uh, a market for oil, yeah. right? Now, Russia's not rich, but it was way richer in, in 2012 than it was in 1995, let's mm -hmm. say. So the, the, the wherewithal to, to rebuild the military is there, but there are also lessons learned. And one of the lessons learned is it ain't World War II anymore. Mm -hmm. And we can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States. So we have to find an asymmetrical way of, of challenging them on the battlefield and beyond the battlefield. So, so on the why has that been so effective that this is, I mean, like this is, yeah, this is a given that, that Russia from a military standpoint cannot seriously compete other than if we're talking about uh, in terms of nuclear weapons. So they've gone to this asymmetrical approach toward the U.S. and the West in general, which seems to have been, I mean, I think we can disregard Syria where they've been involved in a pretty direct bomb everybody that moves kind of way. And we could talk about that more, but since we brought up the asymmetry thing, the attacks on some, well, some of the flavor of the attacks on Ukraine, Georgia previously, and then more directly against us uh, in the context of the election and other sort of propaganda efforts. Where do you think they came up with this idea that I think had, had previously been uh, a thing that maybe the Iranians were particularly good at uh, among a couple of other yeah, the North Koreans. Uh, but where, okay, so where, where did they come up with this asymmetry idea? And then why is it so effective against us? Well, it, so it's an adaptation, right? Um, it's an adaptation. If you, can't, if you can't fight them on the battlefield, then you have to fight them beyond the battlefield. And, and uh, first of all, the, the uh, social media, the, the environment has changed. The hypermedia environment has shifted. It's matured uh, in a sense. So there's a, it's a domain that can be exploited, um, land, sea, air, and cyber in a way that 30 years ago, there was no cyber. 20 years ago, there was really not much in the way of a, a cyber domain. Um, and th this works. Right? It's called uh, various names, hybrid warfare, gray zone warfare. Um, think about the way in which the Russians have uh, intervened in Ukraine, for example. Right? Uh, it's not the, red, the, the successor to the Red Armies crashing over the borders uh, with you know, tank battalions. It's more gray than that. Um, think of the way in which they have interfered in not just American elections, exploiting um, our strength and our weakness, which is an open society. They've used these tools against the Europeans, Western Europeans as well. They've used them against the Baltic states as well. 
um, they are able to achieve their goal. And so that raises the question, what is their goal? And their goal is to destabilize. Their goal is to foment internal conflict. Their goal is to get uh, the countries who are targets to, to go at each other so as to weaken them internally. My judgment so far is that on a scale of one to 10, they've been about a two in success stories, but they're getting better at it, right? And so we're in a, well, that traditional sword and shield dialectic. They're getting better. The West is getting better at countering some of these, um, these, these uh, strategies. Are and they? then they're getting better at countering some of the countering. Um, uh, yes, I, I think, uh, but there are some things we, we, we are not able to do in a free society, right? Mm -hmm. So if we shut down the internet, problem solved to yeah. some extent. Uh, but we're not going to do that, yeah. right? And, and so this, the, the old Soviet style was to use the print press and to use influencers, you know, what uh, variously have been called fellow travelers and useful idiots. So it's an old tactic, but it's a new uh, domain. And yeah. it's, it's one that's it's really- effective with social media. That's right, it's much more effective now. So then backing up just a little bit, if we, so I'm, I'm trying to establish a sort of timeline from, from let's say 2012, because uh, right. I, I, really, I really think that for a number of people, especially people that are not super plugged into the issue of foreign policy, Russian aggression against the West started in 2016, or maybe arguably with the Ukraine thing before that. Before we move on to the next thing, I want to I go back and establish a little more, like just as clearly as possible. 2012, Putin gets reelected. And before that, they'd already done Georgia. And then Medvedev, Medvedev, whose name I keep mispronouncing, apologies to the Russian prime minister, um, took over for a couple of years. And during like the first Obama term, things calmed down a bit. And then in 2012, Putin comes back as president, at which point we get uh, Crimea, Crimea and what was done to Ukraine. We get the really hardcore involvement in Syria, which I think that the way the Russians bombed Syria definitely accelerated the refugee flow, which... Uh, which is, is A, tragic, and B, is creating some instability in the European Union, which seems to be a goal of the Putin administration. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we get also the, the, the lower profile stuff, as you mentioned, the buzzing of, of um, NATO positions with, with planes and the really aggressive campaign of harassment against diplomats by the Russian security services. Um, so uh, are there any that I'm, I'm sure there are some that I'm missing. Well, shipped in the English channel, things like that, but they're all of a piece. Oh yeah, I didn't know a Russian sub just suddenly appeared in like a harbor in Sweden a little while ago. Yeah, High periscope, yeah. yeah. So, so the bottom line is, since long before 2016, the Russians have been in one way or another playing hardball with the, with the West, maybe maybe following the the Lenin quote of the, uh, the the quote, advance with your bayonets. If you encounter mush, continue. If you encounter steel, stop. And so far, they don't seem to have encountered steel. I mean, we we've, we've armed the Ukrainians a little bit, but we didn't really push them out of Syria at all. Um, we didn't do much of anything about Georgia, other than not recognizing South Ossetia and Abkhazia as countries, which I believe we still haven't done. Um, right, right. And and so I, I, you know that. A lot of things that come across as being particular to the Soviet Union are actually functions of Russian political and strategic culture. And Lenin just put a language to it, but, mm. um, but that's been the case for a long time. Oh, there are two ways of interpreting the, the, uh, the, the Obama years in this respect. One of which is um, 
a sensible overture to the Russians. Recall the big, big red reset button. Yeah. And, and that there was going to be this rapprochement. The Cold War was finally over, the Bushes notwithstanding, and we were going to get on with the business of getting on. Uh, and that somehow that got messed up. And the other view is, and I'm on any given day, I'm inclined uh, one of these two ways, I suppose, is that um, the Russians pushed the bayonet in during the Bush administration and they hit some steel and they backed off. And then they realized that when there's a change of administration, they pushed the bayonet in and they found only mush. Yeah. And they kept pushing and pushing. Um, and that makes perfect sense from a Moscow perspective. If you're looking out and you're trying to assert your place on the global stage and, and whatnot, and nobody's saying no, and everybody's trying to accommodate you, keep pushing. Yeah. Right? Keep pushing. And I've, so I think I've, I've heard for failure. years about Putin playing a weak hand incredibly well. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was, a to use some more Cold War language, it was a failure of deterrence in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, there was never a sense that the United States was going to go to a full nuclear war over Korea. Sorry, over Korea, over Crimea, <laughs> uh, uh, or Korea for that matter, but that's a different, uh, different thing. Well, yeah, um, or the also Baltics. for another day. Yeah, or, or the Baltics, that's right. Um, uh, and then so it has to be diplomatic uh, signaling, right? And that wasn't there. And it has to be military signaling of a different kind, a non-nuclear kind. And that has been there with the Baltics, right? So they've been rotating NATO forces through the Baltics because yeah. they can't under the treaty permanently station them there, but they can rotate them through. But the, the fact of the matter is they're a tripwire. If the yeah. Russians were to overtly do anything in Estonia and killed an American soldier, that would change the equation. Yeah. If somebody not in a Russian uniform killed an American soldier and there's plausible deniability, right? And you can see then we're in the gray zone again. Yeah. But there has yeah. been a failure on the part of NATO and there has been a failure on the part of the United States. And I'm not ascribing this to, to any particular administration. I think it's just a timing thing in some respects. At least since 2008, the signals have all been wrong. Yeah, my, my understanding is that the one, the one signal that might have been a little bit less wrong is, is um, from what I understand of the Obama administration, there was plenty of deployment and, as you mentioned, rotation of the troops uh, into the Baltics and, well, we, we certainly didn't pull half of our troops out of Germany until quite recently. <laughs> um, yeah. per, little, little personal point of privilege here. From a moral standpoint, um, the way in which you mentioned, I can't remember which analogy you used, you used before of, um, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, if, if America does one thing, Russia does the opposite. I guess my, the analogy I always use is if America says don't eat yellow snow, um, you know. Um, yep. <laughs> but uh, given, given that, this is this has led that uh, sorry this has meant that over the last couple of, of well at least a decade there have been a number of conflict situations where the U.S. takes a side and so the Russians kind of by default take another. Can you think of and this is just opinion? Can you think of it really any situation in the last decade or decade and a half where there's been some sort of conflict we've taken one side and then of course just because the Russians have taken the other side where we've been on the wrong side and and they haven't certainly not in the case of Syria. Well, I'm thinking of the flashpoints. Uh, no, I can't think of any offhand. Um, it depends on what kind of world order you want to construct. I guess and in the context of if you, if you believe in freedom and democracy and, and some measure of equality and all these sorts of things, is there a single situation where, where the Russians' activity in the last decade and a half had, would have moved the world more in that direction and the West's actions in contrast to the Russians have not? 
in their mind, the, uh, the only plausible case you could make is that in a truly open democratic world, the United States would not be calling all the shots all the time. And therefore standing up to the United States is a moral kind of uh, stand, but that is even, even if that means backing Bashar al-Assad and bombing the crap out of everything that moves in the northern half of Syria. Yes, I was going to say that is a morally unsustainable argument because yeah. it means that uh, you are always going to um, support the bad guys as long as there are bad guys and not their bad guys. That's yeah. an old story yeah. in politics. I could quote Lyndon Johnson on this, but it's probably yeah. a PG broadcast. So I no, I, I've quoted the president, so it's not PG. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but but I mean, yeah, this, this, for, for the record to our listeners, this is not in any way me implying that the United States is always backed the right side and, and um, no, no. you know, no, having, having, having spent at least a little bit of time in Latin America with people who were fighting against the very bad US backed forces in El Salvador, for example, no, no, we, we've definitely not been on the right side. But in the context of the West versus Russia over the last little while where Russia's, Russia's objective has really seemed to be, okay, if the West is doing this thing, I will oppose it. Uh, yes. It seems like I, I can't think of any scenario, and, and I guess you can either in the last decade and a half or so where that's meant that like, you know, Russia is standing up for the oppressed people of, you know, X, Y, or Z nation while the United States bombs civilians or, or something. No, no, I, I can't think of any. I mean, there's, there's a sense that the Russian state has a responsibility towards ethnic Russians outside Russia's borders. Mm. Uh, but that, but the United States is not bombing those people. No. Yeah. We're not bombing Russians in Estonia. Um, okay. So, so then bottom line over the last decade or decade and a half, um, the Russians have been doing things that are aggressive toward the West, many of which have been morally problematic, and, and, and a lot of which probably don't make them look super good on the world stage. Uh, new vaccine that they've just introduced, notwithstanding, and I think we will maybe joke about that later. Uh, my guess is that it's just watered down polonium, um, but uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, so, <laughs> couldn't help it. Uh, so, okay, so, so, so granted, the Russians have been doing a number of aggressive bad things over the last decade or decade and a half. To what end? We've discussed a little bit the, 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 long-term strategic interest of trying to kind of push the conflict zones further away from Russia and thus reassert control, reassert control over some sort of former Soviet republics. But how has this actually benefited Russia? The, the, the life expectancy, the male life expectancy in Russia, I, I want to say is lower than North Korea. The global happiness indicator is not very good. Uh, terrible GDP, the economy is in the toilet. I mean, like what, what does this get Russia other than so domestically, it gets uh, it, it bolsters legitimacy. If the state is the post-Soviet state is founded on Russian nationalism, then then Russia has to look good. Russia has to look good in terms of the shirtless Boris Yeltsin uh, on the on horseback kind of macho. Uh, you know that there's a gender discourse around that, which is interesting. Sure. Um, so it really is. Let 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 them eat. Uh, to to steal a quote from David Rothkopf years ago that I wish was mine. Let them eat enhanced national pride. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then there's, so there's that, but there's also a geopolitical and a, a strategic culture piece, which is a kind of variation on offshore balancing without getting too technical, which is you have to dominate your backyard and you have to prevent in those regions of the world that are important to you, you have to prevent anybody who's hostile towards you from dominating that region. So uh, the Middle East, for example, you don't want an American centered Middle Eastern order. And so how do you prevent that? Well, you stymie the U.S., in Syria, for example. There's also a very particular set of interests in Syria with respect to the ports. Yeah, the base in TARDIS. 
that's right, the, the Mediterranean fleet and whatnot. Um, but even if that weren't there, the Middle East is, uh, the Russian leadership has construed it as important. And so we don't want it run by the Saudis, the Americans and the Israelis, right? Uh, we want a different balance of power in that region. Um, and that's the most important region outside of Russia. You don't see the Russians meddling all that much in the Indo-Pacific region. A little bit, they're running some joint naval exercises with Iran, for example, mm -hmm. but that's connected more back again to the Persian Gulf Middle East region than it is to the Indo-Pacific region. Um, but Europe is very important to them. Um, and they seem to have made come to some kind of um, modus vivendi with uh, an also assertive, also nationalist People's Republic of China. I was going to say, if they got into the Indo-Pacific, that would lead them to potential friction with the Chinese. Yes, no. it would. The Chinese are very ambitious with respect to the Indo-Pacific region. Again, a future podcast, I hope. Yeah. Um, but um, that, uh, that flank, as it were, seems to be quiet for the Russians right now, even though there are some, some flashpoints that I can see emerging over the next 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're really focused right now on Europe, and they're really focused on uh, the Middle East, um, not so much Africa, not so much Latin America. Uh, they did send a, an, one of their aircraft carriers to sail, I think it was an aircraft carrier, uh, off the American coast a few years back. But the problem with that is it sends all the wrong messages. The Russian Navy basically can't send its naval forces abroad without sending a fleet of tugs with them because they break one all the time. Oh, dear. That's, exactly, that's not exactly Putin shirtless on horseback. No. <laughs> Oh, wow. You should try a jet ski next time, I guess. You can go shirtless on those and, yeah. Uh, that might be, uh, yeah. Yeah, better message, I guess. Uh, so then, uh, I guess from, from, from a standpoint of quality of life or anything like that, because uh, you, you could argue that from the standpoint of the American people, America's hegemony in some way benefits people through free trade and lower prices and, and, and these sorts of things. Um, uh, but Russian aggression against the West and other parts of the world, it's hard to argue that it's, that it's actually beneficial to anybody there that isn't working in some way in the intelligence establishment or, or in the military or in the governments, correct? It, it's correct. Um, I would say two things, one of which is the American dream is not the Russian dream and vice versa, mm -hmm. right? So American legitimacy is based on, we don't always live up to the promise to be sure. sure. But the idea is you, you work hard, and you will earn yourself a white picket fence and two chickens in every pot and all that kind of thing. Sure. And that's not the Russian, that's not the Russian. The other fear that that regime has um, and the other opportunity that it sees is back to the color revolutions in the so post-Soviet era, right? That um, the fear is that if, if the Russians, if the Russian, if Putin doesn't deliver something, guns, butter, national pride, something, that that regime is going to fall. Right. And they can't, they can't pr produce and provide the butter. And that yeah. simply leaves nationalism. It's just an expedient, one that is also consistent, though, with that vision of Russia as a muscular assertive power, on, mm -hmm. a power that matters, right? Yeah. Uh, a great old civilization, which has had its problems <laughs> occasionally, but deserves a place at the table of the great powers of the world. And America is nothing special. It's just another power. And that's not the way the world looks to them at the moment. So yeah. um, a combination of internal politics, geopolitics, a combination of 
um, you know, a vision of Russia versus a vision of the reality of the way the world is structured in the post-Cold War era. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then if we, if we take for granted the fact that Russia has been getting more aggressive, and, and I think it's, I mean, um, I, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's a somewhat exponential increase. I mean, if, if they're advancing with the bayonets, they're not encountering any resistance and they're continuing. Um, I mean, the, 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 the 2016 election happened prior to that, Ukraine, Syria, and a number of other things than the 2016 election, and then increased involvement because um, from, from what I understand, the interference in the United States has not, has not really ebbed almost at all. Um, no, in fact, what I'm hearing is it's getting, they're getting better at it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, 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 there seems to be, I mean, I think their, their great weapon in 2016 was surprise. I mean, I, I think that people in the United States are not used to the idea that a foreign country can actually screw with our election. They've lost the element of surprise, but I think that they, from what I understand, have continued to, to stand up Facebook groups uh, and host events of you know two different sides protesting in a place where they they totally did the whole thing themselves. Um, yeah. So if we take for granted the fact that that Russia's bad activity toward the West has actually been around for a little while, but there are some geostrategic and maybe strategic cultural reasons for that, um, and that as of right now, simply the victory of having Donald Trump in the White House and it is pretty clearly a victory for them. Um, I think a, a coup of the sorts that Soviet leaders could only have dreamed of. Um, if, we, yeah. if, we, if we take for granted the fact that they're not apparently going to stop with that, um, we've talked a little bit about how the West has maybe enabled some of this bad behavior. First off, is, is it fair to say that Russia is essentially acts as a rogue state? Um, well, I would say so. It, it is not a, a rogue, you know, what's the opposite of a rogue state? It's uh, Canada. Yeah. Or you know, <laughs> Australia or, you know, it plays by the rules. It mouths the correct pieties. Um, it does what, uh, what, a, what a good neighbor is supposed to do. And the Russians don't play by those rules. Um, so, you know, the, rogue, the, rogue, the label rogue state is a bit dated and has some connotations of the axis of evil and whatnot. Whoops. But uh, <laughs> in terms of a plain English uh, use of the word, I, yes, it is a rogue state. So, now, they what's, around the place, so is the United States, but yeah. uh, well, we can, we can do another podcast on that one, I guess, or or um, <laughs> or we can, we can call that uh, some red meat thrown in for any Russian listeners we have. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, if 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 we think of the country that way, then um, you know there are a number of other countries that we think of as being rogue states: the Iranians, the North Koreans. Um, we handle those countries in a way that's different than the way that we handle Russia. There are other, all of which is to say, we have at least one other example of a nuclear armed rogue state. Why does the West not approach Russia more in the way that it would another nuclear armed rogue state? Is it just its geographical size or oil or, or, or something like that? Um, it's a couple of things. I think, you know, I understand why deterrence and containment are not being tried against China, for example, because of the economics of it. Yeah. It's impossible. Uh, that's not true with Russia. It wasn't true with the Soviet Union. It's not true with Russia. I think that there are a sufficiently large number of people in positions of influence, formal or informal, who simply see Russia as a problem that can be solved once Putin goes away. That in so the same 2036 way, then? If then. Um, <laughs> 
In the same way that uh, European integration solved the Franco-German problem, mm. right? Uh, that the, the, the arc of history, as it were, is such that Russia will eventually join the family of European nations and it will become like Belgium. Okay. There's, a joke, there's a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it won't be, it won't be a threatening external other. Right. That, in other words, the balance of power between those who see Russia as an Asian power and those who see Russia as a global power and those who see Russia as a European power, the Europeanists will win out if we just don't antagonize them too much in the interim. Okay. How many, how many more elections in the United States we know of France and quite possibly Brexit need to be interfered with before it becomes clear that that's probably not a sustainable strategy? So he's not much in fashion these days, but Thomas Kuhn back in the day coined the term paradigm. Uh, it was a set of beliefs that were uh, resistant to the facts, that the, mm -hmm. the anomalous facts could always be fit into the theory somehow. And I think there's a lot of that going on, that people have a paradigmatic view of Russia and the facts are not getting in the way of their belief system about what Russia is all, how it makes it fit. <laughs> and what might be done in future to make it a, a better uh, international player. I, I think it's, it's almost a willful blindness, but it's grounded in people's deeper sort of political philosophies and views of human nature and all the rest of it. And it's not, it's hard to displace. There were people in 1939 who thought we could have peace in our time with Adolf Hitler. And, you know, reductio ad Hitlerum is a bad thing, but it yeah. really doesn't matter. <laughs> you can, in fact, misread something so profoundly on the basis of wishful thinking that in fact you get the worst possible outcome. Mm -hmm. So then speaking of things that could potentially be done, um, we've talked about certain Russian advantages in the context of, of asymmetry and we've talked about, well, I guess we're, 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 we're now thinking about the possibility that Russia will suddenly realize once Putin vanishes in 2036, fingers crossed, that they really just want to be, uh, you know, a Western European power and will allow the Ukrainians to escape their orbit and will allow various other former Soviet republics to start uh, making their own decisions and Russia will become real democracy and, you know, for the first time ever. Um, so given, given the distinct possibility of those things not going as hoped, um, what are some things that the West could do to more seriously contain Russia? I mean, given... Let's, let's take as a given that a second Trump administration will certainly not do that since a second Trump administration, well, we'll, well uh, I mean, the, the president has, as I mentioned in the intro, has had at least a month to react to uh, the Kremlin paying the Taliban to whack American soldiers and has not done so. And if, if, if we're not going to respond to that, uh, it's hard to imagine what we do respond to other than, you know, if Russia were to leak the PP tape, if it actually exists, then Russia would become fake news and a tweet possibly. Um, but assuming an end to Trump's reign of the United States at some point and some kind of restoration of the transatlantic alliance, which again, I think has been terribly damaged by the Trump administration, what are some moves that the West might make were the leadership in the West start realizing that, that simply waiting it out until 2036 isn't an option anymore? Well, you know, when you're in a hole, uh, the first rule of holes is to stop digging. And what I mean by that is the Europeans are merrily, merrily subordinating themselves to Russian oil diplomacy, mm. right? So don't buy any more Russian oil. 
right? Buy somebody else's oil. There's a lot, there's a glut of oil. Oil is cheap. You don't need to build gigantic pipelines from Russia, which is funding everything that they do. The flip side of that, I suppose, and your audience will love this is drill, drill, drill. Oh. <laughs> the more oil in the market, the more petrol uh, on the market, uh, the poorer Russia becomes. Now, that has two possible outcomes, one of which is to chase in Russia, and the other one is to, is to uh, cause it to lash out. I was going to say there, I mean, like you mentioned them being poorer. No, sorry. You said they were richer in 2012 than they were in 2006. But the price of oil has fallen pretty dramatically since, since 2012. Um, you know, alternative energies are taking off. And, and also the Saudis, in order to screw with the Iranians, massively increased their production, which hurt the Russians by default. So, I mean, even if the Venezuelans are unable to produce their oil with a shale boom in North Dakota and, and other sources... Uh, also, from what I understand from Rachel Maddow's book on the subject, it sounds like Russia's own oil industry is not actually very good at getting oil, and they've needed cooperation from Western oil companies who are prevented from seriously engaging in that by sanctions. So as, as the, res the one real resource that Russia has becomes decreasingly valuable, mm -hmm. they, have, they seem to have been lashing out. I mean, they, to me, they act basically as a pirate country. I mean, they, they don't have a lot of resources, but what they do have is this huge uh, military and intelligence infrastructure that they'll use to increase their, their position on the world stage and maybe able to get rid of some of the sanctions. But like, you know, what else, what else can we do to contain that sort of thing? We can, you, you mentioned well, increasing oil production, which might chasten them or might lead them to lash out. What's, what's another option? Well, some options are off the table, right? So you can't use nuclear deterrence to deter anything but nuclear attack. And so that doesn't apply so much to the gray zone military, mm -hmm. uh, paramilitary operations. Um, we're not good at that. The United States is really good at fighting two kinds of war. One is, you know, tank versus tank, desert storm. Nobody can defeat the US military. And the other one now is really good at counterinsurgency operations. Mm. But but nobody's doing those things anymore in quite the same way that they were 30 years ago or five years ago. They're, they're not doing that. They have adapted. They have adapted so that it's almost Darwinian. Um, the, the kinds of warfare and the kinds of forces that were right against the U.S. that were weak have been destroyed. And it's leave, left only the best behind. Right? Mm -hmm. And the Russians have figured that this out. China has figured this out. And, uh, you know, they, the Islamists, the extreme violent Islamists have figured this out as well. Um, and so we need to adapt to their adaptations. And I think, you know, I'm not privy to what goes on in the US military, but I think we're, we've been wrong footed to some extent, focus too much on winning a war in Iraq that's unwinnable, and uh, the Syrian situation, and we don't know how to deal with Russia. I do think, though, that consistency and signaling is really important. When the UK and the US promise Ukraine, that if they just give up their nuclear weapons, we will, we will protect their sovereignty. And then we don't, you know, nobody believes us after yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but there's a slippery slope too. One of the reasons why the US got into Vietnam was it had done nothing in Laos and nothing in Cambodia. And the sense was we have to stand up now and signal strongly mm -hmm. that we're not going to put up with this anymore. And the rest, as they say, is history. And it's not a very good history. Yeah. So, so people who get paid a lot more money than me, I hope, um, are putting their brain power to this problem and figuring out. And here's where the Trump administration comes in. Uh, Trump is very bad at signaling consistently yeah. about anything, right? 
Um, on the one hand, the U.S. Uh, on his watch has, has, has implemented sanctions against Russia, has put more troops, not in Germany, but in, in the Baltics and, and so on. I mean, despite his best efforts, no, I mean, like the sanctions are getting slow rolled and not seriously being enforced. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. And I, and I don't, I don't know what the state of play there is, but I do know I can, I can paint a picture in which that's happening on the one hand and he's playing kissy face with Putin on the other. Yeah. Um, that, that's not consistent and that's sending some wrong signals. Um, and then, you know, I don't know how Putin views, views uh, Trump probably as a useful dupe, if nothing yeah. else. Um, mercifully, uh, the American government is not, does not boil down to Donald Trump. Um, and there are professionals at work day in and day out who are, you know, working on these problems. And um, I'm, a, I'm a believer in American can-do-ism. I think eventually the hybrid war thing will be sorted, but... Um, I was going to say, what are some potential... You mentioned adaptations. You mentioned that the U.S. military is good at tank-to-tank, and then they're good at counterinsurgency, and then we'll need to adapt... I mean, we, we, we seem to come up with some sort of unmarked paramilitary forces to attack protesters in the United States under the Justice Department. So, you know, I yes. guess it's a step, a step toward the, the Russian deployments into Ukraine of unmarked little green men. But uh, in all seriousness, what, what are some adaptations you see? Or is see, that... I, other than... Uh, I have no idea, to be honest. Okay. Um, it, but then I wouldn't have had any idea that... Um, you know, Desert Storm would have gone the way it did and, and anticipated the changes that had to be made to bring that about. I wouldn't have anticipated that the U.S. would have dusted off its counterinsurgency manual from Nicaragua in 1933 <laughs> and, and put it into effect in, in Iraq. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard for me to say because I'm not metaphorically in the trenches day to day. But I do know that there is that dialectic. I'm, I'm sufficiently uh, left over from my youth. There are a sufficient number of Marxist categories uh, that I still believe in. And the dialectic is one of them. And, mm. you know, that steps will be taken. It may be more of, of what they're doing, but in a reverse direction. Mm -hmm. And does anybody believe, by the way, that the U.S. intelligence services aren't engaged in some of these activities vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China? They don't I have a lot. I hope so. They don't have elections to speak of, but disinformation and and uh, sowing confusion and whatnot. Um, we spend a lot of money on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I hope we're doing something. I will. I will say, I, I don't feel any kind of. Well, I don't feel any moral compunction about that. It's not like we're undermining a free and fair election in those countries, as you said. No, no. Exactly. Um, but we've got to get better about protecting our own. And, and let's yeah. let's be honest about what the Russians did in 2016. Uh, it was a pilot program for them in some respects. Um, and and it had no, in my judgment, it had no appreciable impact. It didn't determine the outcome, but it tested and proved some concepts that could be consequential going forward. You know, I, I think the push to move to electronic voting is dead. Yeah. I that, imagine. That's, that's too vulnerable. We're talking about now postal ballots. I feel like I'm back in 1973 or something, right? It's, <laughs> Um, uh, but no, because that's hackable. Yeah, I mean, I, from what I understand, they, they managed to break into the election data that, that, or at least the websites with the election data of every single state, I think. Yeah, I mean, they didn't change any votes. They didn't change any votes. As far as we know. And, and then they fiddled around with the, with the atmospherics, right? Yeah. And remember, the goal is to sow discord and strife. Yeah. And what are American fault lines there? Well, they're, they're obvious. Uh, race, orange man bad, you play yeah. on that one. Yeah. Um, half the country, more than half the country, you, you know, for my job, I have to plug into conservative intellectual circles and I've yet to encounter any, any conservative intellectual 
that's a Trump supporter. I, they just, yeah. as far as I can tell, they don't exist. But there, nevertheless, is a constituency, yeah. right? Otherwise, he wouldn't have been elected. There's there's a constituency there, and so you, if you can if you can widen those fissures, if you yeah. can sow discord and strife, they, I mean, Putin must be rubbing his hands with glee at these protests slash riots in Seattle and Portland and Chicago over the weekend, um, and, and the armed the armed uh, entry into state capitals, presumably. Yeah, no. yeah, all of all of these, they just must be loving this because you yeah. know how it's divided and all that. I mean, this and, is the same thing they do in Germany, other countries. They back the Green Party and they back the far right party. I mean, it's, it's just right. it that's just right. happens in the U.S. that there are only two options. That's right. And in the Cold War, it goes back. They backed um, the campaign for nuclear disarmament in the U.K. was a Soviet, not quite a Soviet front, but pretty close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, well-intentioned people got caught up in that. But the point is, you're not old enough to remember, but I, I was a college student when all of the Greenham Common business was going on. It was turmoil and strife and discord within, within the UK, within NATO more broadly. Um, I mean, mission accomplished, good work. <laughs> uh, and this, is, this, is the, this is the early 21st century version of that. You don't need the whole you know, front organization thing. Uh, no. you can, you can You've got inter- Twitter. You've got Twitter, yeah. 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 And, and uh, my kids tell me face, Facebook's not a thing anymore, but... Uh, uh, it, it is for people that are, you know, over their mid-twenties. Uh, I, I feel yeah. my, my use of Facebook... Vote. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, the, the people who actually turn up to vote are the ones that are on Facebook. I right. think that, although, who knows, maybe, maybe Trump's attempt to cancel t- uh, TikTok will turn that generation out in a way that, that has not been seen since, you know, youth heartthrobs Michael Dukakis and George H.W. Bush... Uh, we're on the ticket, which for, for listeners, by the way, highest youth voter turnout was was the 1988 election. So really? to those of us on my side who are, yes, to those of Rick Wilson likes to cite that statistic a lot. And, and I think it's um, I think it's a good thing to remember for those of us who expect that young people, you know, are just going to save us from a second term of Trump. Um, who knew that with all that's going on in the world, that the TikTok is, this will be the TikTok election. Yeah, uh, who knows? Um <laughs> I mean, I guess it's worth hoping for if, if you want Trump to lose, considering who is on TikTok. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, my yeah. kids tell me TikTok's a thing, but yeah, yeah, I've, I've mostly steered clear entirely, actually. But uh, <laughs> um, so, in any case, then we're in, in terms of countering, you know, future future Russian attacks on. I mean, like, okay, let's imagine that Biden is elected uh, president, which polls suggest being at least somewhat likely. Biden's elected president. Do we think that he takes as, let's say, non-aggressive a position toward Russia as President Obama took? Because from my understanding of the Obama's relationship to Russia was basically Putin thought Obama was weak. Obama thought Putin was a thug and like would take him aside at, at things like the G20 and say, uh, don't interfere in the election and stop having your security forces harass diplomats. But uh, as far as we're aware, you know, other than finally kicking out some some intelligence personnel after the election had already happened, mush, as we referred to before. Do you think that a Biden administration takes a harder line? I think a Biden administration has to take, um, has, to, has to signal to the base that the Russians are bad because that's been such a drumbeat now mm-hmm. for the last several years. Whether that will translate into serious policy shifts, uh, I don't know. Look, I'm not, a, I'm not a warmonger or a hawk and I'd, I, I'd like peace, but sometimes... Um, you know, if if you let the likes of Putin just get away with it time and time again, they don't stop pushing. Yeah. Right? The old bayonet and mush business. Yeah. 
Um, and no American, the Clinton administration was not, it was a different time um, and it was a more hopeful time, but they certainly didn't do anything to, to contain uh, this new Russian state, which hadn't yet met, sort of morphed into the monster that it's become. Yeah. Uh, and nobody since then really, um, the, the eye has been on China or on Iraq or on somebody else. And we haven't paid much attention to, to the Russians. So I, I, I'm not sure that there will be much in the way of a policy shift. I think this is not likely to rise to the level of, you know, the number one thing on Joe Biden's agenda. Mm -hmm. um, which means that lower level people are going to be making these decisions. And if it's sufficiently down the list of things to do, it's going to be career uh, civil servants who are thinking these things through. And if that's the case, it's likely to be more of the same, obviously. Um, okay. They're not going to change course. It may, in fact, be what, um, what people sometimes refer to as a wicked problem. There are a lot of moving parts. It's not clear what outcome we want, and we don't know how to get there anyway. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I think that's fundamentally it. We don't know what outcome we want, except that we would really like Russia to be like Canada. Yeah. And I think that's unrealistic, um, given Russia's history, given the geopolitics, you know, the, the countries are about the same size, but that's about it. There, yeah. There's no similarity other than that. Um, it, may not, it may only be a manageable problem and not one that is soluble um, for the medium to long term. Right. The thing you said a thing that a little while back that reminded me of a thing that I've have been saying for a while that continue, continues to concern me, which is that for a person like Putin, at a certain point, one has to stand up and say stop. I mean, because there's been basically unilateral escalation coming from the Russians since. I mean, like there was, you know, the harassment of diplomats starting about in 2012. There's been the buzzing of NATO positions since around that. Even before that, there was the Georgia thing, and then Crimea and Ukraine. Syria, various Western elections, you know, it seems to be unilateral exponential escalation. And at a certain point, in order for that to stop, a punch will have to be thrown of some sort, whether that's a, a large cyber attack or, or um, you know, some sort of attack personally on Putin to release, you know, evidence of corruption or something like that. Who knows if that would actually damage him at this point, considering how much control he has of Russia. But at a certain point, based on what you said, and, and I agree, some, an elbow will need to be thrown. The problem is, as far as we've escalated, I worry that we might reach a point where the kind of elbow that gets thrown will have to be something fairly substantial, which, you know, obviously opens some doors that we probably would, really, uh, would prefer to remain closed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the obvious one, and I don't know how technically feasible this is, but if you were to drain the bank accounts of all the oligarchs, ah. you know, that sounds straightforward and simple, but what would be, so let's just assume that could happen, right? So Putin is impoverished. Um, um, what would the response be? Because they're not going to simply sit there and take that, right? Mm -hmm. And the response, what, could, what would the response look like? Um, okay, I don't care if they drain Donald Trump's bank account, right? Uh, US courts are gonna do that once he's out of office anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I do care if they drain my bank account. Mm -hmm. Right. Or they otherwise, um, it's not technically feasible, but the, the paranoia back in the mid 90s was they'd be able to turn all the traffic lights in America green. At the uh, same die time. Hard 4. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, or, or, or shut off all the safety protocols at all the nuclear reactors. Yeah. Uh, uh, or, you know, that kind of thing. That, it's not technically feasible, but it does raise the possibility. What would be the, would be the counterpunch? Yeah. And the counterpunch might not hurt our oligarchs 
it might hurt us. Us. I'm, yeah. In case you didn't know, by the way, I'm not an oligarch. Yeah. I, I at this Humble point, tragically, I'm not either. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got a little ways to go before I control the American aluminum industry or whatever. <laughs> uh, so, so I guess bottom line, they've been at this for a while. We have not responded as harshly as we maybe should have a while ago. And yeah. And we don't know, <laughs> we don't really know uh, what's gonna happen or exactly what we can do. You know, there's a reason why parents will, will, will lightly slap the wrists of, of toddlers who are misbehaving, uh, dangerously misbehaving. Because yeah. then they learn a little lesson along yeah. the way. And I'm not, I'm not infantilizing Russians or Russia or Putin, quite the opposite with respect to Putin. Um, but, but there's a logic there, which is if you do this, there will be consequences. You won't like the consequences, therefore don't do this. Right? And we have not yet had the political will, the strategic vision, or maybe even the means to actually mm -hmm. to deliver that. I think it needs to be more than a slap on the wrist at this point. Yeah. But early on, it might have been just a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Uh, this is where I find myself thinking maybe if we'd stood up a little bit more aggressively to the you know, Russian security forces breaking into the apartments of American diplomats in, in Western Europe, yeah, you know, but but at this point, it's like I, it's like we both said the the escalation has gone far enough that at this point, the slap <laughs> will will no, and 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 the, and the tragic reality of of international politics is we like to think people are rational actors, and and like your average undergraduate, most people are minimally rational, yeah, most of the time, um, but some people are not deterrable. We think that signaling don't do this or else you will face really bad repercussions is sufficient to deter, but sometimes not doing that will have repercussions which, which exceed those. This is getting very technical now, yeah. which exceed those. So you have to act anyway. And if Putin yeah. is facing those kinds of pressures, um, we would have to raise the costs to him so high, well, they're, they're just unthinkable, right? Yeah. And they're not credible. So let's say we said, stop harassing diplomats or we'll nuke uh, Moscow. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not credible. Probably not. Who knows with President Trump, you know, if Putin is, you know, call them fat on Twitter, who, I mean, you know, all bets are off, but. I, I, it, I, I'm speechless. Every time it comes to this, the incumbent president, I'm just speechless. I, yeah. I don't understand the phenomenon. Um, uh, I, I'm just speechless. You know, I, I, I think, I, I think Jared called him a black swan. Maybe, maybe that's, um, maybe he had a point. Well, I do know he's out of his, his depth. Um, yes. The skill set that one develops as a mediocre real estate mogul um, versus the skill set one develops as a KGB operative. Um, these are different skill sets. One yeah. suits one to the world of, the, of geopolitics and one doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I'll leave it to your listeners to determine which one is which. Yeah. Well, uh, on that happy note of... They're, they've been doing it. They're going to keep doing it. We don't know how to deter them without potentially really bad consequences. Kumbaya, I guess. Um, I guess. Yeah. On, on that happy note, I guess um, I guess we'll leave it there. I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got uh, things to do uh, later in the afternoon. Um, so thank you so much for joining me, Professor Latham. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I hope uh, I hope we can get on the podcast again and talk about. Well, there's a lot of other countries. There, it's a growth industry. It is a growth. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, thank you for joining me. And um, yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed our conversation. Good. Thank you. That's all for this episode of OK Talks. 
If you're enjoying the show so far and would like to see it keep going, please hit subscribe so you'll get future episodes, and think about leaving a review and sharing it with, like, everyone you know, except for people who would be offended by me constantly making fun of Donald Trump. Besides fueling my ego, this all has the effect of boosting the podcast and the algorithms, which is really helpful. I'd like to again thank Professor Latham for giving so much of his time for our conversation, and all of you for listening. Until the next episode, I don't know, good night and good luck? That's the way it is? Eh, I'll think of something. Thank you.